John D. Rockefeller was a multimillionaire in the late 1800s and early 1900s. What his wealth equates to in today's terms, I have no idea. But he was rich. And I've heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard that he was once asked, how much is enough? As in, how much money? You've got all this money, how much is enough? And he was recorded to say, just a little more. Well, in today's verses in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, we're going to see an extreme example of this kind of desire, what I call desire unchecked. It's the title of the sermon. By that I mean desire with no limits. And as a result of this desire with no limits, we will see people hurting other people. So we're going to be looking today at all of 1 Kings chapter 21, but we're going to start by reading together verses 1 through 7. So remain seated and let's read together from the screen, 1 Kings 21. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now, all the events in chapter 21 happened in the city of Jezreel in the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes. The capital was Samaria, and Ahab was the king, and he had a palace in Samaria, but he also had a second palace in the city of Jezreel. And the chapter opens with Ahab desiring to have Naboth's vineyard because his vineyard was right next to his palace. And Naboth, as we read, refused to cooperate, and Naboth was right to do so. You see, under God's direction, hundreds of years before, when the nation of Israel came into the land of Canaan, they divided the land, and God instructed them, divide the land so that every family in Israel that was there at the time was given property. And then God put restrictions so that that property would stay in the family. So, for example, if a family encountered hard financial times, 
If that happened today, you might think, well, if I've got property, I'll sell it. I can use the money. That wasn't an option. But they could. One option was that they could lease the land to someone else. They could rent it out. And then, as also part of God's direction for the nation, every 50 years they had what was called a year of jubilee. And in that year of jubilee, all debts were canceled. And if any property had been rented out to another family, it was returned to the family who owned it. And so you can see that God's intent was the property given to the family stay in the family. So not only was Naboth not obligated to sell his land to Ahab, the situation we're given didn't fit the circumstances in which Naboth was allowed to sell his land. And we also saw in, in our verses Ahab's two options he gave Naboth. And the first one in today's term would be, all right, Naboth, let's, we'll swap land for land. I'll give you equal or greater value. And then the other option, if you don't want to swap, I'll buy it from you. And as we read, Naboth refuses, and in his refusal, he refers to God's name, Yahweh, which is like a very subtle reference to God's law, which we just saw doesn't allow him to sell his land. And Ahab's response, he sulks, he pouts, he pooches out his lower lip, he lays down and he turns to the wall and he refuses to eat. It is actually ugly to look at a grown man acting like a little child. And in verse 7, Jezebel essentially tells Ahab, get a spine, husband. And her implied message is, look, you are the king. You can do whatever you want. And then she says, all right, Ahab, you're going to play like this. I will get you what you want. And Ahab, I'm sorry, Jezebel then, plans a murder. And when you read it in chapter 21, you're going to see how matter-of-factly it is presented. She gets some paper, she gets her husband's seal, and she writes out a note to the city elders and the leaders of the city of Jezreel. And this is what she says. Here's what I want you to do. First, declare a special event. Should have the slide up for that. Yep, there we go. Give Naboth the best seat at the event, because she wants this to be very public. Get two men who are bribable, two men who are willing to do anything for money, and instruct them that right in the middle of this very public event, they stand up, point their finger at Naboth, and say, that man cursed God. And then they were to stone Naboth to death. Now, there's a couple of things about this plot. First, and I think Jesse even might have mentioned it, Jezebel not only uses, but she misuses God's law. I mean, think of her circumstance. She wants Ahab to get the vineyard. The guy who owns it has refused. How do we get him out of the way? Oh, she's not from Israel, but she apparently had heard enough of Israel's laws that, oh, one of those, oh, yes. Anyone who curses God is to be stoned to death. That's the basis. She's twisted it now for her own purposes. And secondly, this is very clearly an abuse of power. It's an abuse of power by Jezebel. It's also 
and abuse of power by the city elders. And the city elders and leaders do exactly what Jezebel told them to. They declare the event. They invite Naboth. They give him the best seat in the house right up front. They've arranged the two accusers. And when the two accusers stand up and point the finger and say, he has cursed God, they go, oh my goodness, what a terrible thing to do. And they lead the people to stone him to death. Now, we don't know that the city elders were crooked or if they were afraid of Jezebel. And she was a woman to be afraid of. When you see how matter-of-factly she arranges a murder to get what it is that she wants done. Even if they are afraid, it does not excuse them for the wrong they did. And as you read the whole chapter in 1 Kings 21, you're going to see Naboth's name mentioned multiple times and the fact that he died multiple times. The writer is emphasizing how wrong this is. And then we see how Ahab only cared for himself. The letter was sent. The elders have done their job. Naboth's dead. And Jezebel walks into Ahab. Ahab, you remember the other day you're on your bed pouting? And I said I'd take care of it. Well, it's done. Okay? The, the property is yours. You can have it. You know, by the way, it's not a problem because Naboth is dead. How convenient for Ahab. And then, if you read the account, you'll see there's some things not there. You don't see Ahab going, oh my goodness, what a coincidence. I wanted the property, and now the guy's gone. You don't see him asking anything about how Naboth died, what the situation was, none of that. What do you see? You see Ahab immediately going to his new vineyard. And I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't have his plans for turning it into a vegetable garden in his hand when he goes. Now, realize this. Even after Naboth is dead, Ahab had no rightful claim to the property, to the vineyard. He just took it because he was the king. The next thing that we read, God is speaking to Elijah, and God pronounces judgment on Ahab and sends Elijah to speak to Ahab and tell him what the judgment is. Now, the judgment is given in two parts. The first part of the judgment speaks of Ahab's death. And you read that when, Ahab, when God is telling Elijah, this is what I want you to tell Ahab. And he says, I want you to tell Ahab, the dogs will lick up your blood in the same place they licked up Naboth's. Now, it's a little subtle, but right there. Your blood, your life blood, you're going to die. The second part comes in the account as Elijah is telling Ahab, this is God's judgment. And the second part of the judgment is on Ahab's household or his dynasty. And Elijah ha God has Elijah refer to Jeroboam and Baasha. Both of them are previous kings of Israel, ten northern tribes. And in both of their situations, their family line was destroyed. There was no one left in their family line to rule. And God is saying, that's what's going to happen to you, to your family. Now, 
back then and in other cultures today, family is very important. Not only children and descendants, but the family name is important. And that's why it was such a hard, a hard thing for the whole family line to be cut off. In our culture, modern Western culture, the individual is more important, and we don't feel the force of what that means. Now, in this conversation, as, as Jesse mentioned, Ahab calls Elijah his enemy. That's blame-shifting. Because when you look at the situation, the facts are that Ahab was God's enemy. He made himself God's enemy. And he doesn't like Elijah because every time Elijah comes, things get difficult and he has hard things to hear. And he does this time. Elijah pronounces the judgment. And then in the chapter, there's a little break and a commentary is given on Ahab in verses 25 and 26. Verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So there's a few different things here. First, said that Ahab sold himself to do evil. We don't use that phrase anymore. It means that Ahab made a choice. He chose again and again and again to disobey God. Then it tells us that Ahab let Jezebel incite him. That is, Ahab let Jezebel influence him. Jezebel's the one that brought Baal worship to Israel when she came and married Ahab. We also see something else. Ahab's sin isn't anything new. He's repeating what other people had done before him, the Amorites. And you see that word idols, I-D-O-L. And so easy for us today to think, oh, these people, they make this little wooden or gold or silver statue and they bow down to it. How primitive. What we've seen a couple of sermons ago is those people had the same kind of desires that we do. They had the same kinds of things that we chase after, like us, like money and wealth and power and influence and comfort. They went about it a different way. They were going after the same thing. And in their case and in ours, we break God's first commandment. God's first commandment is don't put anyone or anything but God first in our lives. And when we say, you know what, I, you know, I'll only be happy if I get this money, I get that car, that house, that job, that relationship, we've put that first. We've pushed God out of the way and put that thing first. And God says, don't do that. And we all do it, not just occasionally, but every day all through the day. And you see that word abominable? It's not talking about the snowman. Okay, abominable means detestable. When Ahab and those people with the idols, when you and I, with these things we chase and put first before God, it makes God sick. That's what it means. Then you get to verse 27, and you get a huge surprise. Upon hearing his judgment, Ahab repents, and the root word of repent means to turn. We're told Ahab humbles himself in sackcloth. Now, we don't know what sackcloth is. 
and we, wouldn't, we would not knowingly do this to ourselves. Sackcloth was an uncomfortable, itchy material. But back then, they were very public with their feelings, and it was a very public way to show your sorrow and your remorse. And Ahab does this. But, there is a but, as you read the chapters that follow with Ahab, you do not get the sense that Ahab's repentance was complete. Now, I think it was real as far as it could be real for him, but it wasn't life-changing. And in that, I believe Ahab is like us. Because there are plenty enough times where you and I are truly sorry for the consequences that we bring on ourselves. But our hearts aren't truly turned to God, at least not yet, and to God's ways. If we truly were repenting, truly sorry for our sins, saw our sin as God does, we would hate our sin and we would grieve over it. And Ahab, he's grieving over his circumstances. He's grieving over what he brought on himself, but not that he had disobeyed God. But even with that, in verse 29, the end of the chapter, you get another surprise. God delays the second part of the judgment. God tells Ahab, you're not going to see your family line cut off with your own eyes. It'll happen after your death. So that's 1 Kings 21, Naboth's vineyard. And there's a lot that we can learn because this chapter is very, very rich in application, but it can also be disturbing. Just like that story about John Rockefeller, just like the true account of Ahab, our human nature also wants more, a little more, a lot more. And that's true for all of us. We didn't plan it this way, but part of what Wayne was talking about, that, that God made us and breathed into us his spirit, and we've rejected him, so we have this huge emptiness in this hole. We try to fill it with all kinds of things, but it never satisfies. It might be okay, we might enjoy it for a little bit, but then we want it again and again, or we want more or something better. It doesn't really satisfy. And I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, that this fact about us not being able to be satisfied by what we find on earth shows that we can only be ultimately satisfied with God. We don't see it just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in James 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, we read this. What causes quarrels and what causes spites among you? Is it not this, that your passions, you could throw the word desires in there, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is being written to Christians. All of us still quarrel and we still fight and we desire selfishly. In, in verse 2 there, that murder is most usually done with words when we try to hurt other people. And... What is the dynamic? Why is it that we are this way? I mean, what do we do with this? If you go to the next slide, I call this the idle words chart, I-D-O-L. And there's a progression. Start at the top left, desire, demand, need, expectation, disappointment, and punishment. And you see it in this story. You see it in our lives. 
starts off with a desire. It'd be really nice to have something. A desire is optional. I'm, I'd like it if I get it. I'd like, I can be okay if I don't get it. But then, so often, and this can happen so fast, we go from desire to demand. And by the way, I got this from Paul Tripp. He didn't actually have this diagram, but he talked about it in a book, and I put it in a diagram because I just saw the connection with these. We go to a demand. I Not, not, not just I, I would like to have it, but now I must have it. And then we go the next step. And notice the word need is in quotes. We declare the thing a need. A need is something that if we don't have it, we will suffer. Like we need food and water. You don't eat, you don't drink something long enough, your body suffers. And we declare the good grade on the test, the spot on the couch, the car, the job, the relationship, a need. So what we're telling ourselves is, I will suffer if I don't get this. Well, that leads to expectations. You're either going to help me get it or at least not get in my way. And if you do, oh, disappointment leads to punishment. Okay, you're going to pay. Because next time, I want you to be right there with me, helping me get what I need. And you see it with Ahab. He desires the vineyard. It doesn't stay a desire. It becomes, I must have it, and then I need it. And so he's sulking. He has this expectation. Talks to Naboth. Naboth refuses. Ahab is disappointed, so he pouts. And in this case, Jezebel is the one who gives the punishment. But you and I do the same thing because this is us. This is us. And God sees, God saw, and he knew the evil that Ahab and Jezebel and the city elders were doing. In fact, God tells us he knows the thoughts of our hearts, the thoughts we haven't shared with anybody else. But here's the part that's harder for us. For his own purposes, God allowed their evil. And God allows evil today, not just in others, but in us as well. And we have this evil in us because we are sinful, broken people living in a sinful, broken world. And in this world, people hurt other people in all kinds of ways. So we should not be surprised. It's interesting that in, in pretty much every other culture that I've been reading about this, suffering is a part of life. It's accepted. It's there. You can't get rid of it. It's there. Deal with it. But in Western culture, we act surprised by suffering. We try to avoid it and go to great lengths to avoid it. But we shouldn't be surprised by suffering, including when you and I suffer at the hands of other people. And what we see is that suffering will be a part of this world because this world will continue to be broken until Jesus comes again and we have the new heavens and the new earth. Now, sometimes suffering is done by individuals. Sometimes it comes through I wish I could find a better word, institutions, companies, schools, groups of people together doing something. Sometimes it happens by governments. Sometimes the suffering is intentional. Like in our verses today, Jezebel planned, very coolly planned to murder Naboth. 
And sometimes the suffering isn't intended, but it still happens. An example I think of is when a war on poverty was declared by our government in the 60s. It had a really good intent, but the results are mixed. There's some good and there's a lot of bad because the policies that are intended to help people often what has resulted in is generations of broken families because the incentive unspoken is you get more if dad is not in the picture. You get a broken family. Now, with this suffering, God, and we see it in our, in our verses today, God promises justice. And that's both comforting and it's scary. It's comforting because we all desire justice on other people. It's scary because we all deserve God's justice, otherwise known as his just punishment. And God tells us that one day he will punish every injustice. But though God promises justice, God doesn't promise that other people won't hurt us. We see in our verses that Naboth died. And if you keep reading and you get into 2 Kings, you'll actually find a reference that tells us that Naboth's sons also died. And we're not told, but it's implied same time. So the family, his family line is taken out. Again, this can be hard for us that God allows suffering and evil like it is. And if you want to, to dig a little deeper in this, there's a book of letters by John Newton, who is a pastor. He's known, mostly known, for writing Amazing Grace. But he wrote a number of letters, and in there he addresses this question. Why does God allow evil, not just in other people, but in us? And one of the things he says is, and I believe it to be true, because God wants us to see the evil that's in us. God wants us to see that when we need to be rescued, it's not from our circumstances. Mostly it's from us, our own hearts that we need. We see in our verses, God pronounces judgment on Ahab. And many people get confused in the Old Testament because there, God makes a number of pronouncements of judgment but a good number of those are given for motivation. God says, if you do this, then this. He's not promising every single one of them that it's all going to happen. In this case, with Ahab, and in some other cases, God's pronouncement was certain. And for Ahab, it was. But again, part of that judgment was delayed, which, as Jesse was talking about, shows us God is a merciful God. And he is a merciful God. In the previous chapters and other sermons we've looked at, you see God intervening in Ahab's life. More than once, God steps in and gets right in front of Ahab in his face, using Elijah to get his attention, to call him to obedience. In this case, what you see, and it's something to remember, is that um, God's doesn't promise that he will always continue to be merciful, 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 ad nauseum through the end of time. He doesn't. He says there is an end to his mercy, and we see it today in the account with, with Ahab. But God tells us even when he does stop the mercy, he does not in delight in punishing people. He does promise justice, and as we've already heard, more than once today, we deserve God's justice, his punishment, 
So it's a good thing that God is merciful and that he shows mercy to us. And then we see that in the end, Naboth lost his inheritance. But in contrast to that, every Christian has the sure promise from Jesus that Jesus' inheritance for us is secure. He's put it in heaven. You and I can't touch it. Okay? It cannot be stolen. It cannot be lost. It cannot be destroyed. It is there, and it doesn't fade. It doesn't fall apart. It's ours for eternity. And our inheritance is him. It's him. Now, in preparing for this sermon, I came across a quote and a story that I want to share with you briefly. The quote, Many in American society have just about all the world has to offer, but we are impoverished when it comes to heaven's inexhaustible riches. Compared to other countries, the United States is very, very rich. And you look at Fairfax County, and the list of all the counties and the wealth in them, Fairfax is on the upper side, not the middle or the lower part terms of what's here so you can drive through neighborhoods and see the nice houses and the cars the question is those people with those nice houses and cars do they have riches in heaven or have they decided to try to fill the void that Wayne talked about some other way including with all the stuff that they've gathered and then a story true story about a man in India that as he was growing up as a boy and a young man was treated unjustly and violently. But, you know, that's not limited to just India. Okay, as I look at cultures and history and everything else, I see that injustice and violence occurs more often in cultures that have not been influenced by Christianity. And certainly, I, I think if you look at history, there's that uh, you could make the case that there's more injustice than there is justice as nations fight against nations and people steal from others and all the other things that happen. And so we shouldn't be surprised that as America moves further away from God and from his word that injustice and violence increase. That's a whole other sermon. Coming back to this young man who as a boy and a young man was wrongly treated and he wanted revenge. In fact, he made revenge his life's goal. So somebody gave him a Bible. He didn't have a particular interest in it, but he says that one day he decided, well, I'm going to open it up and read it, and so he opens up to 1 Kings 21. And the first thing he reads out of the Bible isn't Genesis 1, it's the story of Naboth and Naboth's vineyard. And he gets to the end of the chapter and he reads a few more chapters, and he says, I never knew that a God of justice existed because in his experience, he hadn't seen justice. But here he reads, the God who created everything promised justice and, and God delivered. And that reading of 1 Kings 21 was the first step in this young man becoming a Christian. Who would ever thought, think, Naboth's vineyard can speak like that? Well, people hurting other people is regularly in the news. And often in these situations, these incidents, you see desires unchecked. Sometimes it's that path from de you know, desire to demand to need, and sometimes it's, I want it, I'm going to take it. I don't care what it does to you. It's been a few years now, but I remember the story of Enron, the company where 
a handful of people decided they were going to cheat all kinds of other people so they could get richer. That what, they, what they showed is their answer to the question, how much is enough? More. And I don't care what it takes to get it. So what hope do you and I have in the middle of a world where people hurt other people, where we hurt other people? Our only hope is Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from us. And he rescued us at great cost to himself. Jesus is the one working out his plan for us, who rules today, and one day he'll complete the restoration that he started. And remember how he started the restoration. It was with his own death and resurrection. So in the middle of the mess that we live in and that we contribute to, I have some questions for you. Do you trust Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus for rescue? Not just once, but every day. Because our desires are still here. Somebody called our hearts an idol factory. We're pumping out desires faster than you can count them. And what are we doing with them? We can't handle them. Are we looking to Jesus for rescue? Are we following Jesus? If you say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, well, he says there's two, two loves that, you're going to, that are going to be seen in your life. Loving God and loving others. And then the last question, are you satisfied with Jesus and what he gives? We so often get everything totally upside down. We think in terms of what we can see, what we can taste, what we can experience. And Jesus tells us, you don't have the first clue of what he has for us, and we get a taste of it right now as we live life with him. Don't have a clue of what's coming in heaven, all the good that he's given, and all the good that's here, even though it's mixed with brokenness, it's here. He offers it to us. He offers himself to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this story that is both true, well, it's true, it's disturbing, it's also comforting to see that you are working, that you worked in Ahab's life, that you showed him mercy. Clearly didn't deserve it. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't deserve your mercy, yet you offer. And you've accomplished everything needed to not only to make us right with you, but to rescue us from us and to work in our lives. So we thank you for that. Thank you for giving us perspective on the the brokenness of the world that we have here. And we, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust you, to follow you, to be used by you to love you and to love others, and that we can live each day, not just endure, but we can live with you and delight in you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we have a song. Please stand and let's continue worshiping our Lord in a song of response. Thy mercy, my God. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the most of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affections and bound my song. 
sweet mercy I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair, but through thy free goodness my spirit's revived. Then he that first made me still keeps me Righteousness, mine. 